Chapter Nineteen of Our Vanishing Wildlife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Vanishing Wildlife by William T. Hornaday. Chapter Nineteen: The Present and Future of the Game of Asia. After a successful survival of man's influence through two thousand years, at last the big game of India has made a good start on the road to vanishment. Up to 1870, it had held its own, with a tenacity that was astonishing. In 1877, I found the Ganges, Jumna Duab, the Animali Hills, the Wainayad Forest, and Ceylon literally teeming with herds of game. The Animales, in particular, were a hunter's paradise. In each day of hunting, large game of some kind was a certainty. The Nogiri Hills had been quite well shot out, but in view of the very small area and open golf-links character of the whole top, of that wonderful sky plateau, that was no cause for wonderment. In those days, no native shikari owned and operated a gun, or, at the very most, very few of them did. If a rogue elephant, a man-eating tiger, or a nasty leopard became a public nuisance, it was a case for a sahib to come and doctor it with a .577 double-barreled express rifle worth $150 or more, and the sahibs had shooting galore. I think that no such great wildlife sites as those of the plateau regions of Africa ever were seen in southern Asia. Conditions there are different, and usually the game is widely scattered. The sambar deer and munchak of the dense forests, the axis of the bamboo glades, the thamang deer of the Burmese jungles, the sladang or guar of the awful Malay tangle, and the big cats and canines will last long and well. The ibexes, makors, tar, and all the wild sheep eventually will be shot out by sportsmen who are sheep-crazy. The sheep and goats of Asia will disappear soon after the plains animals of Africa, because no big game that lives in the open can much longer endure the modern inexpensive long-range rifles of deadly accuracy and limitless repetition of fire. Eventually I fear that by some unlucky turn of fortune's wheel all the native hunters of Asia will obtain rifles, and when they do we will soon see the end of the big game. Even today we find the primitive conditions of 1877 have been greatly changed. In the first place, about every native shikari hunter owns a rifle, at a cost of about $25, and many other natives possess guns, and assume to hunt with them. The logical conclusion of this is more hunting and less game. The development of the country has reduced the cover for game. New roads and railways have made the game districts easily accessible, and real sportsmen are now three or four times as numerous as they were in 1877. At Tunak in the Animali Hills, where thirty-five years ago there modestly nested on the ridge beside the river only forest ranger Theobald's bungalow, built of mud and covered with grass thatch and bamboo rats, there is now a regular hill station lighted by electricity, a modern sanatorium high up on the cliff, a club, golf links, and other modern improvements. In my day there were exactly four guns on the Animales. Now there are probably one hundred, and it is easy to guess how much big game remains on the delectable mountains in comparison with the golden days of 1877. I should say that there is now only one game animal for every twenty-five that there were in my day. I am told that it is like that all over India. Beyond question the gun-sellers and gun-users have been busy there, as everywhere else. The game of India is on the toboggan slide, and the old days of abundance have gone forever." The first fact that strikes us in the face is the impending fate of the great Indian rhinoceros, an animal as wonderful as the Titanothere or the Megatherium. 
It is like a gift handed down to us straight out of the Pleistocene age, a million years back. The British paleontologists today marvel at Elephas Ganesa, and by a great labor dig his bones out of the Sawalik rocks, but what one of them all has yet made a move to save Rhinoceros Indicus from the quick extermination that soon will be his portion, unless he is accorded perpetual and real protection from the assaults of man. Let the mammalologists of the world face this fact. The available cover of the Indian rhinoceros is alarmingly decreasing, throughout Assam and Bengal where the behemoth of the jungle has a right to live. It is believed that the few remaining rhinos are being shot much faster than they are breeding, and what will be the effect of this upon an animal that requires fourteen years to reach full maturity? Today the most wonderful hoofed mammal of all Asia is booked for extermination, and unless very radical measures for its preservation are at once carried into effect, it is probable that twenty years more will see the last Indian rhino go down to rise no more. One remedy would be a good, ample rhinoceros preserve, and another, the most absolute and permanent protection for the species, all along the line. Halfway measures will not suffice. It is time to ring in a general alarm. During the past eighteen years, only three specimens of that species have come out of India for the zoological gardens and parks of the world, and I think there are only five in captivity, all told. We are told that in India now the natives are permitted to have about all the firearms they can pay for. Naturally, in a country containing over three hundred million people, this is a deadly thing. Of course there are shooting regulations, many of them, but their enforcement is so imperfect that it is said that the natives are attacking the big game on all sides with deadly effect. I fear it is utterly impossible for the Indian government to put enough wardens into the field to watch the doings of the grand army of native poachers. Fortunately, the Indian native, unlike the western frontiersman, does not contend that he owns the big game, or that all men are born free and equal. At the same time, he means to have his full share of it, to eat, and to sell in various forms for cash. Even in India, the sale of game dragon has reared its head, and is to-day in need of being scotched with an iron hand. When I received direct from a friend in the native state of Kashmir, a long-printed circular setting forth the hunting laws and game-protective measures of that very interesting principality, it gave me a shock. It was disquieting to be thus assured that the big game of Kashmir has disappeared to such an extent that strong protective measures are necessary. It was as if the chief Eskimo of Etah had issued a strong proclamation for the saving of the muskox. In Kashmir the destruction of game has become so serious that a game preservation department has been created, with the official staff that such an organization requires. The game laws are printed annually, and any variations from them may be made only by the authority of the Maharaja himself. Up to date, eight game preserves have been created, having a total area of about 300 square miles. In addition to these, there are 12 small preserves, each having an area of from 25 to 50 square miles. By their locations, these seem to provide for all the species of big game that are found in Kashmir. The ibex, two forms of makor, the tar, Himalayan bighorn sheep, burl, and goral. In our country we have several states that are very large, very diversified in surface, and still inhabited by large game. Has any one of those states created a series of game preserves even halfway comparable with those of Kashmir? I think not. Montana has made a beginning with two preserves, Snow Creek and the Pryor Mountains, but beside these splendid series of Kashmir they are not worthy of serious mention. And then, following closely in the wake of that document, came a lengthy article in the Proceedings of the Zoological Society of London, 
by E. C. Stebbing, in which a correspondent of the Indian field clearly sets forth the fact that the big game of the Himalayas now is menaced by a peril new to our consideration, but of a most deadly character. Hear him. In this inventory of game destroyers in India, the Gurkha soldier does not find a place, for he belongs to a class which he amply fills by himself, with his small but very important personality. He deserves separate notice. From the banks of the Sarda on the frontier of Nepal to the banks of the Indus, the battalions of these gallant little men are scattered in cantonments all along the outer spurs of the Himalayan range. In seven or eight of these locations there are at least fourteen thousand of these disciplined warriors, who, in the absence of opportunities for spilling human blood legitimately, are given a free hand for slaughtering wild animals, along five hundred miles of the best hunting-grounds of Upper India. Now since those facts must be true as reported, do they not in themselves constitute a severe arraignment of the Indian government? Why should that state of game slaughter endure, when a single executive order to the C.O. of each post would effectually stop it? In the making of game preserves or sanctuaries, as they are called out there, the government of India has shown rare and commendable diligence. The total number is too great for enumeration here. The native state of Mysore has seven, and the Nilgiri Hills have sanctuaries aggregating about 100,000 acres in area. In the Wainayad Forest, my old hunting grounds at Mudamali have been closed to bison shooting, because of the alarming decrease in bison, guar, through shooting and disease. The Kundar Forest Preserve has been made a partial game preserve, but the door might as well have been left wide open as so widely ajar. In eastern Bengal and Assam, several game preserves have been created. On the whole, by the diligence and thoroughness with which sanctuaries, as they are termed, have been created quite generally throughout India, it is quite evident that the government and the sportsmen of India have become thoroughly alarmed by the great decrease of the game and the danger of the extermination of species. In the past, India has been the finest and best-stocked hunting ground of all Asia, quite beyond compare, and the destruction of her once splendid fauna of big game would be a zoological calamity. Tibet as yet, Tibet offers free hunting, without legal let or hindrance, to every sportsman who can climb up her lofty, wind-swept, and whizzing-cold plateau. The man who hunts the ovis poli, superb creature though it be, pays in full for his trophies. The ibex of the south help out the compensatory damages, but even with that, the list of species available in southern Tibet is painfully small. The Mitchell taken can be reached from China, via Chungking, after a long, hard journey over Consul Mason Mitchell's trail, but the taken is about the only large hoofed game available. The Altai Mountains of western China contain the magnificent Siberian Argali, the grandfather of all sheep species, whose horns must be seen to be believed. Through a quest for that species the Russian military authorities played upon Mr. George L. Harrison and his comrade a very grim and unsportsmanlike joke. At the frontier military post on the Russo-Chinese border the two Americans were courteously halted, hospitably entertained, and prevented from going into the Argali-infested mountains that loomed up before them only a few miles away. The Russian officers said, "'Sheep! Why, if you really want sheep, we will send out some of our brave soldiers to shoot some for you, but there is no need for you to take the trouble to go after them.' After Mr. Harrison and his comrade had spent five thousand dollars, and travelled halfway around the world for those sheep, that is in brief the story of how the cup of Tantalus was given them by the Russians, actually at their goal. As spoil sports, those Russian officers were the champions of the world. Seven hundred miles southeastward of the Altai Mountains of western China, 
guarded by the dangerous hostility of savage native tribes, there exists and awaits the scientific explorer, according to report, an undiscovered wild horse. The bi-colored wild horse is black and white, and joy awaits the zoologist or sportsman who sees it first. Evidently, it will not be soon exterminated by modern rifles. THE IMPENETRABLE FORESTS Although the mountains of Central Asia will in time be cleared of their big game, when by hook and by crook the natives secure plenty of modern firearms, there are places in the Far East that we know will contain big game for ever and a day. Take the Malay Peninsula, Borneo, and Sumatra as examples. Mr. C. William Beebe, who recently has visited the Far East, has described how the state of Selangor, between Malacca and Penang, has taken on many airs of improvement since 1878, and sections of Sarawak territory are being cut down and burned for the growing of rubber. Despite this, I am trying to think that those developments menace the total volume of the wildlife of those regions but little. I wonder if those tangled, illimitable, ever-renewing jungles yet know that their faces have been scratched. White men will never exterminate the big game of the really dense jungles of the eastern tropics, but with enough axes, snares, guns, and cartridges, the natives may be able to accomplish it. In Meliana there are some jungles so dense, so tangled with lianas, and so thorny with livestonias and rattan, that nothing larger than a cat can make way through them. There are thousands of square miles, so boggy, so swampy, so dark, gloomy, and mosquito-ridden, that all men fear them and avoid them, and in them rubber culture must be impossible. In those silent places the guar, the rhino, the Malay sambar, the clouded leopard, and the orangutan surely are measurably safe from the game bags and market gunners of the shooting world. It is good to think that there is an equatorial belt of jungle clear round the world, in Central and South America, as well as in the Old World, in which there will be little extermination in our day, except of birds for the feather market. But the open plains, open mountains, and open forests of Asia and Australia are in different case. Eventually, they will be shot out. China, all save Yunnan and western Mongolia, is now horribly barren of wildlife. Can it ever be brought back? We think it cannot. The millions of population are too many, and except in the great forest tracts, the spread of modern firearms will make an end of the game. Already the pheasants are being swept out of China for the London market, and extinction is staring several species in the face. On the whole, the pheasants of the old world are being hit hard by the rubber-planting craze. Mr. Beebe declares that owing to the inrush of aggressive capital, the haunts of many species of pheasants are being denuded of all their natural cover, and some mountain species that are limited to small areas are practically certain to be exterminated at an early date. Destruction of Animals for Fur In the far north, only the interior of Kamchatka seems to be safe from the iron heel of the skin-hunter. A glance at the list of furs sold in London last year reveals one or two things that are disquieting. The total catch of furs for the year 1911 is enormous, considering the great scarcity of wildlife on two continents. Incidentally, it must be remembered that every trapper carries a gun, and in studying the fur list, one needs no help in trying to imagine the havoc wrought with firearms on the edible wildlife of the regions that contributed all that fur. I have been told by trappers that as a class, trappers are great killers of game. In order that the reader may know by means of definite figures the extent to which the world is being raked and combed for fur-bearing animals, we append below a statement copied from the Fur News magazine for November 1912 of the sales of the largest London fur house during the last two years. With varying emotions, we call attention to the Wombat of Australia, 3,841, 
Grebe, 51,261, and Housecat, 92,407. Very nearly all the totals of Lampson and Company for each species are much lower for the sales of 1912 than those of 1911. Is this fact significant of a steady decline? End of chapter 19